So we're in John chapter 10. It's the second half of John chapter 10. And I would give my talk this morning the title, Listen with Your Heart. We'll take John 10 verses 22 to 42. Um, but I'd also like to steal verse 19 just at the start. So verse 19 from John 10 says, At these words the Jews were again divided. And that's where we left them last time. Then verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I say, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Sorry, trying to get my machine to work. Um, I'd like to borrow your imagination, if I may. Please join me. It's um, shortly after the day of Pentecost. Peter and John have healed a crippled man at the gate to the temple called Beautiful. They have moved on from um, the Beautiful Gate, just a few yards to the east, and they're entering what was known as Solomon's Colonnade a kind of enclosed porch. It's a large square space, about 200 meters by 200 meters. Its boundaries defined by 160 40 foot stone pillars, creating a kind of massive wall, two pillars deep. And I'm imagining fabulous acoustics. And there's a noisy commotion. The crippled man now miraculously and instantly healed is walking and leaping and praising God with loud shouts. And he's holding on to Peter and John, and soon a crowd gathers, people running to see what it's all about. 
Peter seizes the opportunity, taking advantage of the acoustics in Solomon's colonnade and launches into his sermon about why they should not be surprised at such miraculous things happening, explaining the truth about Jesus being the Christ, although crucified, now raised from the dead, something that all the prophets had testified about. Although on this particular occasion, the temple gods dragged Peter and John off to prison, the reality is Solomon's colonnade would never be the same again. It became the regular meeting place of the believers in the Lord Jesus, thousands of them, so much so that Luke records in Acts 5 that no one else dared join them there. I'm thinking that perhaps this was in the memory of, in John's mind, what Solomon's colonnade had since become, at least for a short time, the meeting place for new Christians in Jerusalem. But this was in his mind when in his old age, he recalls what had happened the first time they met in Solomon's colonnade a couple of years earlier. This time it was Jesus who was at the center of a commotion. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders divided because of him, jibing at him, determined to do all they could to dispute the obvious that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah. John recalls the nature of the debate and how expertly Jesus handled those who refused to recognize him for who he was. He remembers how it started with what seemed to be a reasonable question from the unbelieving Jews. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know, Jesus' answer was very subtly accurate, I think. He says, I did tell you. What he didn't say is, I did tell you plainly, because I think the reality is he didn't tell them plainly. In my NIV Bible, um, that particular verse, when it says, I did tell you, it takes me to two other references. One back to John 4, where Jesus does make a very clear, unambiguous dec declaration that he is the Messiah. But that was in private to the woman at the well. And then I'm also taken to chapter 8, where he declares, before Abraham was born, I am. Perhaps not the kind of plain speaking that the unbelieving Jews were really looking for. Makes me want to ask the question, why would he intentionally speak in cryptic tones to them? And I'm going to suggest perhaps there's two reasons. First is that they had a completely wrong sense of what the Messiah would do. Seeing him as a great politician or even a military leader, he would stir up a rebellion that would ultimately overthrow Roman rule. That's clearly not the nature nor the mission of the true Messiah as was depicted in the Old Testament. The chosen servant who would ultimately become the suffering servant and the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The last thing Jesus needed was the distraction of misguided supporters prosecuting for a contrary agenda to his own. Perhaps more importantly though, one of the reasons why he spoke cryptically to them is because he really knew their hearts. That they had resolved really never to believe. Whatever he said or whatever he did, they refused to believe. And they were really only interested in promoting their own self-seeking interests. And with that knowledge, Jesus refused to play to their tune. Instead, he picks up on an earlier theme, the cherished metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. You know, this metaphor was not new to them. They had heard Jesus use it 
before, of course, that's where we were last week. But it was also a recurring theme in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, they would have been very familiar with the likes of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But I'd like us to go to Psalm 95 together, because when you look at the language that the Lord Jesus uses in his argument, I think it would probably take them back to Psalm 95, which they would have been very familiar with. So if we go to Psalm 95 and verse 6, it says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day at as you did that day at Massa in the desert. Where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So perhaps with this Psalm in mind, Jesus begins with a pretty damning declaration to the unbelieving Jews. He says, you are not my sheep. In effect, saying to them, you're not listening to my voice. You've hardened your hearts, just as your ancestors did at the time of the Exodus. And so he then elaborates on the metaphor with what is a wonderful contrast. He says, you're not my sheep, but if you were, you would listen to my voice. My sheep, my real sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You know, these words have become an icon for the wonderful doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved, no strings attached was an offence to the hard-hearted Jews at the time, but a delight to those who acknowledge him as their shepherd. Let's unpack what the Lord Jesus says about his relationship with his sheep. Number one, they listen to his voice. I really enjoyed David's thought last week about the communal pen that was um, where the sheep were kept um, close to town, and the sheep being able to distinguish between the voice of their shepherd amongst the noise of all the other shepherds. Such was the um, trained ear that the sheep had and the trained voice that the shepherd has that um, they were able to listen to his voice. And he says, I know them. It's an acknowledgement of intimacy, isn't it? Nothing hidden. He says, and they follow me. They follow him because they know what's good for them. They know that he has their best interests at heart. So why wouldn't they follow him? I give them eternal life. You know, that's eternal life, starting with the abundant life that Jesus had promised earlier. And it starts, it's eternal life, but it starts in the here and now. And he says, they shall never perish. You know, that's such a, a wonderful, unambiguous promise. And it's an echo from John 3 and 16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then he goes on 
it just gets, seems to me, it gets more beautiful as you go on. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You know, there's something, I love these verses, they go back a long way in my uh, Christian experience. And I'd never noticed before who's doing the holding. You know, it is his grip of me that makes me secure, not my grip of him. And sometimes we get that the wrong way around. We kind of think that maybe we've somehow lost touch and we've let go. And that maybe is the case. But our security comes from his grip on us. And he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. It's a kind of beautiful, divine, collective ownership of the flock that Jesus has with his father. And he says, no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. That doubly secure uh, truth that we've grown to celebrate. And then he says, I and the father are one. You can just imagine him kind of eyeballing his critics in um, Solomon's colonnade. And with his last comment, I and the father are one. It's like, now I've said it plainly. <laughs> You know, what, what more could I say? And their response was a bit of a shocker. Um, in their fury, they pick up stones to stone him. You know, that's a pretty aggressive stance they took. And I'm quite struck by the rather cool and highly authoritative response that the Lord Jesus um, came back to them with. And he, he coolly says, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you are me, a man, claim to be God. It's as though they're saying, don't distract us with the fact of your miraculous powers. Our minds are closed. No, it's a, a real um, shocking position that they're taking. But it does present, I think, an opportunity for a gospel appeal, because so many need to let go of their own misconceptions and consider the facts about this amazing person that is Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, for you and me, lost sheep in desperate need of being found. Of course, every gospel appeal has two, two dimensions, an appeal to the lost to respond to the shepherd's call to their salvation of their soul, an appeal to the found to respond to the shepherd's call to the salvation of their lives of service. What follows, I think, is a kind of quite technical argument. And it's one of those occasions when um, it probably meant more to his audience than it does to us. And we have to do a bit of research to actually get to the point. But it seems that this kind of technical argument is the way they... Um, chose to, to discuss. They would have understood the context, of course, and Jesus makes a reference in his comments, in his argument to them from Psalm 82, verse 6, in which it seems that judges at the time, judges appointed to rule over Israel, are referred to as gods with a small g because they were given a kind of imputed authority to judge. And yet they were corrupt, the psalm says, defending the unjust and showing impartiality to the wicked. These judges that were appointed, if you like, on behalf of God and were called gods. And Jesus is saying, in effect, you are happy to call them gods 
but here is me doing the kind of things I'm doing. And yet when I say I'm from God, you accuse me of blasphemy. No, if you can't accept the things I say, then believe for the sake of the miracles themselves. But their hearts are hard, their minds are set, and they try to seize him again. But he escaped their grasp. You know, that's a lovely little thought. It's a miracle in itself that, surrounded by his aggressors, he could just escape their grasp. Let's not forget the bigger picture here. John's continuing to build his case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. In constructing his case, in John constructing his case, he emphasizes the point that the people were divided because of Jesus. In many cases, their hearts were hard, and when faced with miracles, with the testimony of those who had been the object of the miracles, and when faced with the words of Jesus himself, they returned remain determined not to believe. I chose my words carefully here. It's not a matter of them not being convinced. It was a matter of, the, of them being determined not to believe. It strikes a chord with me about my own hardness of heart, even as a disciple. Basking in the wonder of the eternal security of my salvation, can I fall into the trap of the Pharisees and kick against the things that God would show me from his word? kick against the things that he would have me do? I think it's a question of motivation. Where is my heart in all of this? Am I listening with my heart? Listening to the voice of the shepherd. I ask myself the question, why were the Jews at this particular time in Jerusalem meeting in Solomon's colonnade? John tells us it was a festival of dedication also known as the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, the Hebrew word for consecration. It's a really interesting festival. It's an eight-day event that happened in the wintertime and is coincident even today with our Christ, uh, Christian Christmas festival. And curiously, this reference in John 10 is the only place in Scripture where we read about it. It was a tradition established about, about uh, the celebration of the rededication of the temple after Judah Maccabee, no relation I presume, in uh, 161 BC led a revolt against the Grecian occupiers of Jerusalem, that which preceded the Roman occupation. The point is, the Feast of Dedication was a festival established between the Old and New, Te between the Old and New Testaments, hence the lack of any reference to it. It was not a festival prescribed by, prescribed by God, it was a bit like Christmas, their own invented tradition and what they did during it involved a lot of lights and candles and stuff, hence the festival of lights. And it was indeed their own invention. As we said at the beginning, Solomon's colonnade would have, would have its day in the story of, Christ, of the Christian church, but this day was not it. Those present were the kind of people that were more occupied with their own invented traditions, if you like, somehow all tangled up in the bright lights that drew the crowds, while their hearts became blind to the very presence of God amongst them in the person of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd and the source of abundant eternal life. So having escaped their grasp, where did Jesus go next? Verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. He stayed 
Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many, many believed in him. Now, this place is called Bethany, actually, but not the same Bethany as um, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And it seemed to attract a different kind of people. These people were not in Solomon's colonnade in the, um, in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, if you like, attracted by the bright lights. No, those who were in um, this Bethany where John had done his baptizing were those who respected John the Baptist's message of repentance. They were drawn to the Lord Jesus there and believed in him, recognizing that all that John had said about him was true. The lesson for me today is a re-examination of where my heart is in all of this. I know where I need to be, listening to the voice of the Lord who is my shepherd and following his delight, following with delight, wherever his lead takes me. I'd like to conclude by revisiting Psalm 95, this time the first half of the psalm, uh, applying it to our own hearts. It's a wonderful balance of acknowledging the greatness of God, his shepherd-like character, and how when he speaks, we should listen and respond as those whose hearts are eager to follow and obey what we know will be for his glory and for our own enjoyment. Psalm 95 verse one. Come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol, his, extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his cur. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Brothers and sisters, let's listen to um, the Lord our Shepherd with, listen with all our hearts. <laughs>